So good evening. This evening I'd like to talk about um, suffering and faith and the way those two dance with each other in our lives. And um, the ways in which both can support us in uh, being more mindful and stable in this practice. So I had a dream. Martin Luther King is not the only one. <laughs> Sometimes I say, oh yeah, that's just my, my brother, my dad, you know. No, I'm only kidding. But it was in 1985, and I was living in Santa Cruz, the land of spiritual materialism. <laughs> at least it was at the time. And I was in this, um, I was in this dream workshop or writing workshop. I can't even remember fully, but I, it, I remember having a dream that. I was this, um, I saw myself full and round and content uh, sitting on this flower that uh, in the middle of a very still lake. And just this big round body sitting on this lake. And um, I was very content. The birds were singing my favorite song. The sun was shining on my face. And then there began a just torrential rain, a storm. And there was lightning and thunder. And the lightning was striking this body. And the lightning had chiseled images of body parts and people that I had been in struggle with throughout my life. So there was an ear or a nose and a, you know, hand and, you know, and they were all just attacking this, this, this body sitting on this flower. And what was so poignant about the, the dream, the image, was at no time was I disturbed by it. There was this sense of, of um, ease that was maintained throughout this just really outrageous storm. And that sense of ease and contentment um, left me believing that that was possible and I wanted some more of it. I, I remember it having that kind of piercing impact. And seeing and having a hit like that of such peace and ease was a first for me because prior to that, my life was, was pretty horrific. It's not like the dream totally changed my life, but it planted um, a seed of what was possible. And that wasn't just a thought, it was an experience I was having through the dream. So I come from a, a a lot of suffering, like so many of us do in our history, in our lives. So immediately in my community in South Central Los Angeles, there was just a lot of 
of terror and violence and um, abuse and uh, struggles uh, and um, a lot of activism, a lot of fear. I remember being fundamentally afraid as a young child. I was, uh, at the age of seven, I remember a very potent image of my great-grandmother pacing in the kitchen in a dirty apron back and forth because she worried so much about her children being harmed. And what stood out so strongly for me was that I didn't know how to comfort her. I didn't know how to comfort her. It felt, it seemed so big that there was no comforting of her or myself in the, in the witnessing of it. And actually nothing that I can see in my immediate environment that can, could console or care for the magnitude of what I felt she was experiencing. I was pregnant at 15. I had a baby. I really knew what I was doing. I thought I did, like most 15-year-olds. I grew up with a kid on my hip hip. We kind of grew up together. That was at 15. And then at 17, the day that the Watts riot broke out, my father was killed by a girlfriend in a jealous rage. And I remember holding my son as the funeral you know, procession went through the National Guards. And I was wondering, in my numbness, what is a life anyway? What is the point? As I held so tightly to my son. It would take many years before I could really experience the trauma of that, the suffering that registered in the body. And I lived most of my life after that in just rage, pure rage at anything, everything, and especially those things and people who dare to get close to me. That, that kind of access that people have when you care about them to the heart. And the weight of guarding that throughout my life was the norm. And I didn't realize that I was also living with an undiagnosed hyperthyroidism. So I thought this, this being on fire was, was all about my rage, but it wasn't so simple. So then when I had open heart surgery at 27, right, this kind of cumulative impact of being on fire and being at war with the life and with the way I was relating to my life was another one of those moments where waking up from that surgery, I was able to see Oh, the weight of my life that I'd been carrying in my heart was now sitting on top of my chest. And in some odd way, that was my first silent retreat because there was no energy to do anything other than be with the experience I was having.
So all of this was happening before I was 30. It's not maybe what a lot of you have experienced by the time you're 30. But that was a big part of my life coming up. This, this kind of um, atmosphere and norm of um, trauma and, and suffering. So the dream really represented this kind of potency of possibility, this, 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 this something, this deep way that I knew something could be happening other than the suffering I was living day to day, especially in the ways I was dealing with it. But I was also very curious and, um, and ambitious. And I worked and um, did quite a bit of, um, I went to, finally went to college, did quite a bit of international traveling. And it was like when I traveled, the, the being on different parts of the planet wakes up different parts in the body, at least that was my experience. So it was an expansion of um, this sense of body as I knew it. So in a lot of these travels, this is still prior to Buddhism, you know, a lot of these travels, I, I was starting to get what felt like flirtations of Buddhism. I talked about the, having this kind of chance encounter with the, with the Dalai Lama in India the other day when I talked. And then I met, uh, two years after that trip, I met Dr. Marlene Jones Schoonover, Schoonover, who used to be on the board here at Spirit Rock. I met her in China at the Women's um, World Conference of Beijing. And here we are, two black women with long dreadlocks, looking at this two-story golden Buddha with tears running down our eyes. And she looks at me and she says, do you meditate? And I said, who is this, who is this person? And she said, well, I said, well, kinda. I didn't really know what to say to her at the time. And then she said, where do you live? So we're in China. And I just casually say the Bay Area, as if everybody in the world knows where the Bay Area is. And she said, so do I. And she said, I want you to come with me to Spirit Rock. Come with me, we can practice together. I'm on the board there, I need you. And I said, oh no, I don't want to be doing all of that. And, you know, she was a passionate activist for um, social diversity and inclusion and had a huge heart. We met, <coughs> we met for several months and in the Bay Area and talked about our lives and our children. And I finally went with her on a Monday night here to Spirit Rock. And I heard Jack, who was her teacher, speak on a Monday night. And um, Jack started his talk like he often does. And what he said was, O nobly born, 
you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddha, of the awakened one, remember who you are. Because the element of the truth seeker is within you, there's a part of you that already knows who you are and wants to awaken to this mystery. And because this is a part of you, it takes you on this journey of discovery. And for some reason that got it for me. This idea of being on a journey of discovery, of you already know. There was just something very strong for me in that very simple invocation that he offers usually at the beginning of his talks. So I fell in love with Jack, with his heart, with his faith. And um, Spirit Rock became the Sangha that I practiced with, and that was 24 years ago. And Jack became my teacher for a while. In fact, Marlene and Alice Walker formed a, a group of nine women of color and Jack. <laughs> and we met in Berkeley for 10 years as a Sangha, studying the Dharma, sharing our lives. It lasted up until I moved to Charlotte, North Carolina in 2007. And it was then that I started, it was during that time that the meaning of that dream city, that big guy with my face sitting on that flower started to come into more realization. And I began to see that one interpretation of that dream was that the, that the fat guy <laughs> was my Buddha nature sitting on the, the lotus flower of becoming are trying to become and having a peaceful war with Mara, the deity of distraction. And that, that image continues to be a teacher of faith in my practice. I'm talking a lot about uh, my life here, but it's useful to reflect on your life. Maybe not so much to take yourself away from your practice, but to know that when we sit on the cushion, we bring our lives with us. We bring our lives to the cushion. And it makes sense that when we slow down, we open and feel more and remember and can attend to some of the ways and appreciate how we actually got here. So the question you can reflect on, some of them are, how have you been seasoned by suffering? What suffering in your life has given birth to faith or a longing for freedom? What faith dressed up in suffering or suffering dressed up in faith got you here? 
How different is your life now than it was before you began practicing the Dhamma? And what does faith and suffering have to do with you taking 10 days, and for some of you, longer? What does it have to do with you taking this time coming to bathe in the Dharma. What faith supported that? So all of us sit here in what appears to be kind of um, an isolated practice. But on many levels, we're kind of all cooking something that we're also tasting in this practice. You'd be shocked of the life of the person sitting right next to you, what it took for them to get here, what suffering and faith they've lived with throughout their lives. The Buddhist philosopher Nargajana says, one associates with the Dharma out of faith, but one truly knows out of understanding. Understanding is the chief of the two, but faith proceeds. So faith ripens through an understanding of the Dhamma. We've all seen those um, flowers that manage to find their way through the crack in the concrete and they kind of show up, the blade of grass that finds a way to get through the concrete and have its expression. And the lotus flower can only grow in the mud and its petals open one by one. What does this say about your practice, your unfolding, your coming to know? And just as nature teaches us about this kind of robust beauty, this persistent beauty, this struggle that finds its way, that, that continues, the Dharma also teaches us about nature, the nature of our minds, the nature of our lives. Suffering and faith are the first and second stages of uh, one of the teachings that's referred to as the 12 stages of liberative dependent co-arising. We have the 12 steps of dependent origination and then we have these 12 steps towards liberation. And the first step is suffering. That suffering... um, creates the conditions for faith to be known, which is the second link. Faith faith creates the conditions for joy to be known and on down the chain of the 12 liberative dependent co-arising links. So they do dance together. There is service, there is meaning It's not like suffering is a problem. 
Um, if suffering is understood, it could serve us in our lives tremendously. So a little bit more about suffering. The Buddha's teachings speak of three different types of suffering. There is the physical suffering, which is uh, the suffering that is, you know, you just don't get to escape birth, aging, sickness, death, hunger, thirst, deprivation, bodily discomfort, physical harm. The force on our physicality that sometimes comes from others. So there's physical suffering, there's psychological suffering, the unexpected pain and loss and disappointments, sorrows, frustration from separation from what we like and dislike. Disappointments that come from expectations that we have that don't quite go our way. There's chronic anxiety and distress, trauma, fear, threat, psychological suffering. And then the third is depending on our response to physical and psychological suffering. We often find ourselves responding unwisely through our conditioning. We have a conditioned response. We find ourselves looping in these kind of samsaric cycles of ignorance, desperation, addictions, attachments, a lot of war we have with ourselves. All things greed, aversion, delusion play out here. But what's important here is with this third form of suffering is that it depends on our response to the first two. So there's suffering, as we've been learning this week, there's suffering that leads to more suffering and there's suffering that can lead to the end of suffering. It's like Mark was saying the other night, what we feed and what we starve is really related to this third form of suffering, our relationship or our response to the inevitable suffering we experience in our lives. Now the good news about suffering is that it gets our attention. What we do next is pretty important. But we can use suffering to ripen our faith There are two Pali words that are associated with faith. One is pasada, and the other is sada, and they're both very similar in the sense that the words both point to confidence, trust, wisdom, and conviction. So faith is associated with this sense of inner confidence, Trust. Trust in what? Trust in our practice. Trust in, in our ability to wake up. 
faith is also one of the five spiritual faculties that are taught in the teachings. And these are inherent qualities that when they're developed, they become like superpowers. And they represent these five, it's a list that represents five, but, but there's mindfulness and then the other four uh, represent a sense of balance. So there's mindfulness and then there's faith and wisdom and there's energy and concentration. So we can become mindful of noticing this kind of energetic dance of, of, of between movement and balance that speaks to a quality of faith. And there's a story in the teachings about the blind giant and the small sharp-eyed cripple. So the, the blind giant says, I'm strong and I can go fast, but I can't see. And the small, sharp-eyed cripple says, I'm small, but I can see with sharp precision. So the blind giant has faith, the small, sharp-eyed cripple has wisdom, and then they make a deal. So the blind giant says, if you ride on my shoulders, together we can go far. And there's energy and concentration there, so that's kind of a superpower story. Faith also includes qualities of care and devotion, service, and giving of oneself. And it's a softening, I find, that is felt from the release from the weight of conceit. That if we are not engaged in trying to make faith happen, then, you know, the, what, what we're left with is a sense of um, um, being with something a little bit more, um, what would you call it? Um, something that's not so much in our control as much as it's felt in our release, our surrender. We experience faith in a variety of ways, and Bhikkhu Bodhi talks about faith. He says, faith is compared to a hand and a seed. He says that's a hand, it's a hand in that it is needed to take hold of beneficial practices. And it's a seed in that it is the vitalizing germ for the growth of higher virtues. So a hand and a seed is a way to play with it. So I played with these words a little bit. Um, a hand... Um, perhaps can be something like uh, a blind faith. I remember when Dr. Schoonover, Marlene, handed me her hand and asked me to join her in this practice. That was a hand, a gesture. A hand could also be 
seen in a sense of borrowed faith. Like a teacher as mirror of light and inspiration. It's like I borrowed Jack's light until I could turn my own on, you know, in the teachings. And sometimes where um, that hand could be kind of a, a sense of borrowed faith that we're, we're operating in. A hand might also be an example of a leap of faith. It could be those times when we can say a shaky but clear yes to something or no to something else. A leap of faith is, is the faith to open, to let go of convention and to explore some new terrain. A leap of faith could be said every time we let go of some fixation, some tightening. We'll often leap when the need for change outweighs our present conditions in our lives. We leap when we have a curiosity and willingness to kind of reorient and reorganize our relationship to life, our relationship to our minds. And we leap into the Dharma. We leap into the Dharma. There's a Zen koan that says, climb to the top of a ladder and take one more step. So a hand of faith is needed to take hold of beneficial practices that support us in cultivating our faith. And then a seed, faith as a seed, be a sense of bright faith. This kind of deep resonance and radiance that we can find ourselves experiencing a kind of uh, alivening insight that's actually um, supporting a seed to actually sprout and grow. It's like something that kind of comes together. When I had that dream, you know, the the seed was planted and, and then it started to flower at some point. Meeting the Dalai Lama was a seed something that was dropped in and then began to um, make sense at some other time. It's that sense when you say to yourself, this feels right, something is happening here, something is possible that I never imagined. So the ego's not in control here. Fundamentally, faith leads us to verify for ourselves what we have faith in. So much of our practice is investigating what's true. So one way to cultivate faith is through the practice of taking refuge in the three jewels the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, that chant that's done each morning. Many people went to the Buddha 
to take refuge in the Buddha and what his instruction was, was these three things. Be your own refuge. Have the Dhamma as a refuge. And make yourself a refuge for all beings. So I want to talk about each one of those in terms of how you, we use refuge to support faith. So be your own refuge is taking refuge in the Buddha. Faith in the Buddha as a human being, someone who awakened as a historical figure, as someone that woke up. What we see when we see the Buddha is that potential. We see a reflection of our own Buddha nature, our capacity to wake up. So what we're really looking at and um, taking refuge in the Buddha is faith in our Buddha nature. Our recognition of goodness and a deep respect for how we got here. There's also, um, we can take refuge in our teachers and the monastics the embodiment of their practice. We can see what's innately human and what's possible through the examples that the teachers make available to us through their practice. So it's the... uh, um, We can look at how and what we're gravitating towards when we're looking at teachers, you know. It could be a teacher that's used as a hand at times, a teacher that's used as a seed. But ultimately the Buddha is inviting us to recognize our Buddha nature. Choosing a teacher is also a form of refuge. And I know for myself, um, there's some things that really support me in meeting um, and, and connecting with a teacher that supports practice. A teacher, for example, who teaches by their, their life and lived experience from their practice. A teacher who's Um, who has a sense of humility, have learned and can teach and connect to others from their own suffering and awakening. A teacher who is more interested in supporting my awakening than my comfort. A teacher who doesn't apologize for being goofy, joyful, and in service to others. A teacher that's energetically accessible and heartful. Those are some of the things I look at. And as a teacher myself, I often ask myself, 
why should people put their faith in me? And that question keeps me attending to the responsibility of these teachings moving through. So be your own refuge. Take refuge in the Buddha, in your Buddha nature, the one who knows. Have the Dharma as a refuge. This is taking refuge in the Dhamma, the teachings, these teachings of liberation. It's where we're understanding and we're having understanding and realization of the teachings. The Noble Eightfold Path is a path well walked, a path well practiced. We can have faith in that path. Hearing the teaching certainly has its power, but it's not what the Buddha was really pointing to. The Buddha was saying, upon hearing the teachings, we put it to practice. We know for ourselves. And with this practice, there's really no substitute for for sitting, for practice itself. The Dharma calls us to verify faith, to prove that the teachings work for us. That's how faith gets cultivated in a real way. So verify through your own experience what is true. To know for for ourselves to question and ground the teachings in our direct experience. That's what I find so precious about the practice. This journey of seeing and knowing, relaxing our awareness, really taking the teachings and the practice to heart. And the Buddha's Dharma discourse He says about the Dharma, directly available in the here and now, open to all, leading towards awakening, to be experienced by the wise for themselves. That's what we're doing. So to take refuge in the Dharma, we verify what we have faith in faith in the path and the teachings comes from walking the path and really tasting the teachings. It's a real, you know, this idea of knowing for yourself. I remember when I gave my first Dharma talk, it was with the, um, I'm part of the teaching council in addition to Spirit Rock, but also with the Insight Meditation Community of Washington. So I did my first Dharma talk there, and I was just so nervous um, because it was all about me giving the Dharma talk, you know, not not so much about the Dharma. And Jonathan Faust, who who teaches there, uh, you know, I said to him, oh, this is so crazy making, you know, this is driving me mad, and 
it just takes so much to do a Dharma talk and blah, blah, blah. And, and uh, he says, well, basically you're doing two things. You're, you're, you're saying, you're telling people, this is what the Buddha said and this is how I know it to be true. Or this is what I know to be true and this is what the Buddha had to say about it. So that's all you're doing. I said, oh, that's fantastic. You know, I, I think I can kind of pull that together. Thank you so much. And, and he says, you know, a little is a lot. I mean, he was just so wise. I was just so loving this. And so I went back and obsessed on my talk again and rearranged, you know. I still do a bit of that now. Um, so then I get into the hall. It's full of about these many people at least. And I sit in my chair and everything's right there. And I've got my papers together and he comes up to me and he says, you, you know, do you need anything? And I said, oh, no, I think I'm okay. And, and then he leans over and he says, okay, so don't fuck it up. <laughs> <laughs> and I just fell out of my chair in laughter. I was just, all of the ego stuff, all of this way of controlling and trying to have it together just melted. And I was so tickled by what he said and throughout the talk I couldn't even look at him on the side because he had this big grin on his face. It still haunts me to this day. <laughs> but I took this to heart, you know. This idea of this is what the Buddha said and this is how I know it to be true from my experience. That's, that's what... That's, that's what makes it real. So when I'm preparing, when I'm practicing, when I'm preparing a talk, it becomes a practice, usually for a, for a good period of time. Because I'm examining the talk to see if it still rings true for me in my life. You know, because we're changing all the time and life throws things in our face and we get a chance after chance after chance to really be with our own faith in this practice. Is it, is it true? Does it still ring true? And it reminds me what, of what the jazz bassist Charles Mingus said when he wrote, in my music, I'm trying to play the truth of what I am the reason it's difficult is because I'm changing all the time. Mm -hmm. Now this is what we're doing in practice. We're seeing the nature of change. We're, we're resting our awareness on the truth of that being how things are. And um, in a mental atmosphere of care and kindness, stability and receptivity, we get to investigate the ever-changing nature of mind and our relationship to it. And that repetitive motion is supporting the cultivation of faith when we know for ourselves. And I consider this a mature investigation and a, and a pointed examination that purifies the heart and mind. So 
So have it, to have the Dhamma as a refuge, we, we can ask, how has practice, how has your practice supported your faith? And how has faith supported your practice? And the third gem is the Buddha telling us that we are to make yourself a refuge for all beings. Taking refuge in the Sangha, in the community of practitioners, and the broadening fields of community, the widening circles of them. Through our own example, make yourself a refuge to all beings. So this is taking refuge in our understanding that we belong to each other. I don't know anything that ripens, uh, you know, that gets at our practice than being in community with other folks when we're talking and, and doing what we usually do from our conditioned mind. You know, it could be pretty wacky. It's not easy, this being human, being in relationship especially if you have a sensitivity to this practice because then you kind of feel more and you, you know more and you're kind of held to, to live in the practice but then there's these kind of tendencies where you, you want to wring somebody's neck or st- stay fixed in your, your position. We're, we're sensitive in these bodies. And sometimes because of our sensitivity, we take false refuge. You know, we take refuge in divisiveness or revenge or um, distrust, addictions, and confusion, not knowing. So no one is immune from the ignorance and innocence that we kind of encounter throughout our day. There's, there's no ignorant, ignorant free zones in our lives where we're not going to be touched by that. What do you do with the practice then? See, we're all someplace in our lives where someone doesn't agree, doesn't approve, and doesn't understand understand us. Where is is faith then? Where is the practice in those moments? Our reference to belonging is often rooted in memories, fears, stories, longings. But what would belonging look like if it was rooted in presence? in this moment right here. From time to time, can we show up as if there's no memory? (laughs) Just for a second or two, where we're not bringing our stories and adding it on this moment. Right here, in this moment, I feel safe, I belong. And socially, in our world, we know this is not easy, this is not simple, it's just necessary, you know. 
our um, aspiration to consciously live this practice and share the teachings can be challenged by all of the the um, challenges we see in the world. The aggressive, the aggressive harm towards dark bodies, including the planet, towards women and girls, trans people, immigrants, the poor, just, just to name a short list. Again, many people ask, what is a life? We live in a time of emboldened political corruption and a blatant display of hatred. I worked with a woman recently who has a very diverse family. She said, everyone in my family is endangered at this time. What do you do with your faith then? So if we're growing in our awareness, we're going to be growing in an awareness of these, these other parts of Sangha, of, of extended community. And then we're challenged to see what we bring to, to that. How do we be a refuge for all beings in such circumstances? So when we, you know, sometimes we come on retreat, it makes sense to me that there'd be times where we feel a sense of despair or there's doubt in our practice, doubt in our faith. Of course, we might experience that. We get to work with that. The Buddha also experienced doubt. And I think the story of prior to his being enlightened, he was really questioning whether he would teach or not. He didn't really think people would listen and that the effort would tire him out trying to get people to get it. Does that sound familiar? Trying to get people to get it. And a dear one appeared from another realm and said, Lord, let the Blessed One teach the Dhamma. There are beings with little dust in their eyes who are falling away because they do not hear the Dhamma. They, they, there will be those who understand the Dhamma. And as Kamala was saying the other night, out of compassion, the Buddha agreed to teach. Out of doubt, the Buddha had faith and began to teach. And the Buddha specialized in suffering and its end. That's what he was teaching. He wasn't telling us that you won't experience suffering. He wasn't telling us when suffering happens, do this to these specific situations that we might encounter. What he's teaching, from my sense, is that know what's true 
and be that, be a refuge to other beings from that place of practice. There's a Zen saying that I heard that that, uh, said students should have great faith, great doubt, and great determination. So a loss of faith and doubt invites us to question more intimately, more intentionally, in what do I place my faith? Sometimes I ask, why did I choose this path? What was I thinking? (laughs) And what do I know to be true? What's true? We can aspire towards not giving up on people, humanity. We can see the freshness of each moment being new. We can come, we can become curious about doubt and the, the um, despair that we experience from time to time. We can always begin again. And we can know suffering and also know we're okay through this practice. Ajahn Suchito says that faith is a sustained wonder. And it reminds me of my Dzogchen teacher, uh, Abba Cecile Mahardy. Many years ago, she told me this story. I've heard the story in many forms. But the Buddha was thrown out of a hundred-story building that was on fire to kind of save his life. And so he was thrown out the window, and you know, around the 50th floor, this woman sees, sees him falling through the air, and she shouts out, Oh my goodness, are you okay? And the Buddha says, so far, so good. (laughs) Sustained wonder, faith. And the Buddha says that the future is always other than you, you would imagine it. So we can always reflect, in this moment, what am I taking refuge in? What is dominating my focus? What is my energy enlivening or giving birth to? What is it feeding or starving? In my relationship to suffering, am I, is, am I suffering more or am I uh, feeling more release? And what can I place my faith in that endures? So this is our work in terms of cultivating faith and seeing the role that suffering can play in it. And our practice truly is to benefit all beings, to be a refuge to all beings. It's hard to know when we're so concentrated on the materials that arise in our mind. It's hard to know in those moments that we're actually cultivating a certain 
uh, flavor and the soup that we're all cooking together when we do this practice in this way. Charles Johnson, um, American Buddhist scholar and the author of Taming the Ox, he says, one way to understand right conduct is to see it as a calling to us as citizens to translate the Dharma into specific actions of social responsibility. So we cultivate this practice and service to Sangha, to wider and wider circles. And these are hard times that we live in. We, uh, what we're seeing in the world and maybe in our own hearts is the you know, reflection of seeds that were planted a while back, and they're blooming. That's what we see in the world. Karmic seeds blooming. And how we respond or the seeds that we plant next will make a difference. So this week we've been given a, a number of tools to work with, to be with, that supports our practice. Do a practice for a period of time and just really center into uh, knowing it intimately and having it be known directly through your experience. So I'll just close by um, just kind of this idea of faith and journey and retrospection and suffering. Sometimes we know the potency of our faith in retrospect to the experiences we're having. It's kind of like we look and it's like, whoa, I'm not responding the way I used to, or I'm not as agitated. There is this continuity and momentum that, that we're riding from the seeds that we're planting in our practice. So I've come to know faith not as like a savior or um, a desperation for hope. It's not so much a destination for me as as much as it is those moments of deep knowing I feel like through this practice I've experienced more capacity to witness life without turning away from it. And especially the things that arise in my mind. There's more faith in being able to see and um, sustain uh, the, the rhythm of what's being seen. I feel like this practice has supported a sense of more balance and clarity and more uh, capacity to be with, with what's impermanent and what's imperfect. I have faith in the, the generations. I, I think my great-grandmother would be happy to know that instead of me pacing in the kitchen, that I'm doing walking meditation with my great-granddaughter. And um, 
that there, that there is a way that um, our relationship to suffering can be embodied and impact future generations. I have faith in the heart's capacity to break, open, and heal. And I have faith in impermanence, the knowing directly that I have shifted from being a full-time rager to writing a book about it. <laughs> so, and I, I think my deepest faith is in um, this liberation practice that we're all sharing. And how powerful it is that um, we can know liberation directly for ourselves in this body, in this life, in this breath. So let's sit together. Oh, nobly born, you who are the children of the Buddha, of the awakened one, remember who you really are. Because the element of the truth seeker is within you, there's a part of you that already knows who you are and wants to awaken to this mystery. And because this is a part of you, it takes you on this journey of discovery and of faith. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.